This is episode 9 with Wallabies legend David Campisi. TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. An exciting episode today. I've got Wallabies legend David Campisi joining me. Before I get David onto the show, just a big shout out to everyone that subscribed and left me five-star reviews on iTunes. If you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes. I'm also available on Stitcher or for any Android users, please check out the website www.talkingwithtk.com. For the action-packed Start to the new show. We've had Mark Hunt, George Cambosis, Robbie Madison, Mark Ocalupo, Paul Chief Harrigan, Merv Hughes, John Bow, and Greg Murphy to start the show. So if you haven't yet, check out some of the old episodes. I'm sure you're going to get plenty of fun and entertainment from some of the old stories and some of the new stories. So check it all out. Now, in today's show, David Campisi. Really wanted to get him on for a long, long time when I was growing up. You know, he was one of the absolute superstars of rugby union here in Australia. So from humble beginnings in Queanbeyan, I just really want to just pick his brain on how he actually did make it to the top, some of the successful habits that he did instill in his own game. And, you know, I'll get him to tell a few old stories about the World Cups, playing against guys like Jonah Lomu, and just figure out, like I said, exactly how and what made him so successful. So guys, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with David Campisi. Our special guest is David Campisi. Campo is a household name in Australian sport, and he's also viewed by respected analysts as one of the greatest and most entertaining rugby players of all time. His distinguished career includes representing Australia for 15 years, playing 101 tests, and he held the record for most tries in test match history. We welcome David Campisi. David, welcome to the show. Uh, Good evening for you and good morning for me. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing really, really well. Really excited to get you on. We've been chatting for a couple of weeks to get you on the show. Let's just start because you're in Durban and I know... You've been living there for a little while now, and your wife's South African. So can you just tell us a little bit about your adventures in South Africa and what you're doing over there? Yeah, look, well, uh, obviously, it's uh, my wife is originally from Zimbabwe, and uh, I've been in South Africa on one of the tours for New South Wales uh, for the last year of my rugby career, and uh, kept in contact, lost contact, and, uh, well... <laughs> I got married in 2003, uh, moved over here in 2005. I was a skills coach for the Coal Sharks for three years. Yep. Uh, went back to Australia, uh, had a coffee shop, had to close that. Uh, then couldn't get a job there in rugby, so uh, back over in South Africa and been here since 2011. Yep. So travel the world, uh, do a lot, a lot of my businesses done in Europe. Believe it or not, the problem still like me for some reason. <laughs> and... Um, 
Yeah, so I've been to Australia a few times the last couple of uh, years and looks like we're going to head back to Australia in January next year to live. Yeah. With with South African coaching, you know, you mentioned coaching the Sharks for three years and I know at the start you guys were bottom of the table and I think by the last year you guys won the comp, correct? Yeah, 2005 the Sharks finished 14. Uh, 2006 we finished third. 2007 we finished third. So uh, it was a, it was an interesting uh, insight into the professional game. Yeah. The way things have been done compared to how we used to do things. What was... And, um, Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. Yeah, so it was just interesting to see these guys get paid now. I mean, I had two years of professionalism, so I didn't really see the extent of what these guys go through. But, uh, you know, their training programs, yeah. uh, if they don't train, they go home, they don't work. It's a total different lifestyle. You know, I think now, uh, even now watching, you see uh, when guys get yellow carded or red carded, they don't actually care. Yeah. You know, it's a job. They still get paid. Yeah, exactly right. You know, and I think, and, the, and, the, and why, you know, they train every single day. So why aren't most of these players the best players in the world? They've got all the time in the world to train, and yet they still don't want to be the top level. They still are quite happy doing what they are. Uh, but why wouldn't you want to go to be the best? Yeah. I don't know. If you could change one thing about that, what would you, what would you incorporate? Uh, well, I'll change a few things, but one thing I'll do is get the players to start thinking again. Yeah. Uh, I'd make sure that coaches are not allowed in the dressing room at half time. Let the players start to think about what's happening. The coach comes in, and you see them in rugby where they go in the dressing room, they sit down, there's a whiteboard, and the coach comes in and tells them everything what's happening. Yeah. So what they're not actually learning. Let the players start to think about the game, understand the game, and if things aren't working in the game, they can actually change the tactics on the field instead of waiting for a runner or a coach to tell them what's happening. Yeah, Dave, do you feel that the players have lost their kind of natural instinct for the game and they're more kind of like a little bit more robotic, would you say? Yeah, look, I think the um, you can see, I suppose, in Australian rugby at the moment, it's not great, but yeah. the natural, the, the flair players don't exist. Coaches can't control flair. So what they do is everyone plays the same. Uh, we, you know, I saw New South Wales play the Rebels on Sunday from the kickoff, you know, they're knocked on by the Rebels. We get the ball, we throw it straight to the grounds. Yeah. You know, where players, uh, it's all structured. There could be a blind with three Waratah players and one Rebel, but they go the other way because that's the way the structure's played. Instead of players actually having to look, see what's happening, do the communicating, and off they go. Yeah, it's actually... Coaches control the game. Sorry, coaches control the game from the grandstand now. Yeah. It's very interesting... Because I have heard you speak about when you broke into the Wallabies team, yourself and Mark Eller and Glenn Eller and players like that, and you guys came from, you didn't come from a private school system, so you actually played what was in front of you and you played with a lot of flair. I guess we don't really see that in today's game at all, do we? No, look, I just think that it's, uh, it goes back to coaching. You know, the one thing in rugby, um, it's, I suppose Lee do it pretty well. Mm. Uh, they use ex-players. You know, in rugby, we don't use a lot of ex-players involved in coaching. Yeah. Most of the ex-players go on TV because it's easy. You know, uh, when you actually, when you actually um, want to give the knowledge, the knowledge is in our in us. We're the knowledge. So why don't they use us? You know, we're here to help. You know, and I think in Australian rugby at the moment, you can see over the last probably ten years. There's no knowledge because there's no experience being taught to the younger guys. And that's one of the biggest problems I think that we've had over the last 10 years. Yeah. 
you mentioned rugby league. One of the biggest questions I've always had to wanted to ask you was, you know, you, you played in an environment where it was a very amateur game and you didn't get that many years as a professional. Given how good you were at rugby, did the NRL, or sorry, the ARL at the time, did they try to poach you back over to rugby league? No, look, I played rugby league from 8 to 16. Yeah. The Queen and Blues. Uh, I I went to the Australian schoolboys for trials in rugby league. Yeah. Um, I never trialled for the Australian Rugby Union uh, schoolboys. Uh, going to a government school, obviously, that wasn't part of it. Yeah. Uh, played a couple of years of Aussie rules, won a golf champion 15, and one day I decided to go and play rugby. That was it. I played fourth grade in 1979. And it was probably the best year of my rugby because I had all the old guys, been there, done that. Yeah. And I was this young guy wanting to learn and they passed on the information. Every player should play club rugby for a year or two to understand this is what happens. You're going to get smacked. You're going to get belted. This is what happens. And that's how you learn. You don't learn from school straight into test rugby or provincial rugby. You need that middle area. And it was quite interesting last week where uh, Dag, who plays for the Crusaders, yeah. Uh, came back and they said the week before he played club rugby. Wow. How many of us, our players in Super Rugby play yeah. club rugby before they come back to provincial rugby? None. Well, at the end of the day, you're giving back, aren't you, at the same time, and you get to teach what you've learnt to the next generation as well. Yeah. So I think what is yeah, well, I think is great. It's, uh, we go back to Chris Latham when he played for Rams in his first game. Like He was playing with David Knox, myself. Yeah. So every time something happens good or bad, we would say, that's great, now next time, look at these things. That's how you learn. Yeah. These young kids now, they make a mistake, and look around and say, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Oh, it must be okay, because no one said anything. Yeah. But if you have a look at the average player, the average player is around 23, 24. So they haven't got a lot of knowledge. So us old guys who are over 50, got a lot of knowledge, but they don't like using us for some reason. (laughs) Probably because we can think and we've got an opinion. Yeah. I, think, I think that's our big downfall. <laughs> Dave, how'd you move from Queanbeyan to Sydney? What was that process like? So I missed that one. So what was the process like from you leaving Canberra and Queanbeyan and coming down and playing for Randwick in Sydney? How did that work out? Uh, yeah, what happened was I think I was playing in Queanbeyan for the, for the ATT side, and I started playing for the Wallabies in 82. This is 85, 86 going... There's no job opportunities. Yeah. So Bob DeWire, who was a Wallaby coach, said, look, before you retire, you've got to come play for Randwick. And the reason was Randwick because most of my mates who I found the Wallaby played for Randwick. Okay. The Ellers, Matt Burke. It wasn't because Randwick was the only team. It was just that because that's where my mates were. Yeah. And in 86, I went down to work for Wormall Security, and uh, off I went. So never looked back. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I wasn't sure what you did for a living while you were playing rugby. So you were in security, did you say? Yeah, look, I didn't uh, finish school. Um, that was probably my biggest uh, problem. Um, and worked for Wormald in Sydney. Then I went to Italy for six months, came back, and I worked for Gatorade for okay. Line Nathan. Went back, came back, worked at the Taronga Zoo. I always had jobs. And then in 92, I opened up a sports shop in Sydney. So that was really, that was my job then, uh, working in sports shops. Uh, then I had a shop in um, The Rocks in Sydney. I had a Canterbury franchise yep. with a coffee shop in, inside. So I do bits and pieces. You you name it, I'll do it. What was, uh, what was the name of the shop? Uh, it was Campo Sport and Leisure Wear. 
um, up at uh, Brugunga. And then it was the Canterbury franchise at the Rocks. And then I just bought uh, just a David Campisi at the Rocks. Yeah. Was that one of those things that, despite you playing footy, did you used to have like an advisor that kind of tried to tell you that footy wouldn't last forever and you had to get something behind you? Yeah, look, I had a lot of interest, a lot of people over the years help. Um, no, and I think also what helped me when I went to Italy, it made me a better person. By I lived in the, in the country, uh, even though my dad was from there, had a lot of relatives, yeah. couldn't really speak the, the language when I went there. Plus, just the experience, you know, I was 23 when I went over, six months by myself, come back, go back, go back. Then you just get you just grow in confidence. Yeah. Uh, but my knowledge of rugby was getting better because initially I played number ten. Yeah. So as a winger, test winger, I knew exactly how the opposition number ten would think. So knowledge wise, that's made me a better player. And I wanted to try different things: kick right foot, kick left foot. Yeah. You know, try different things. If they worked, they worked. If they didn't, well, keep on trying. <laughs> so that was the experience that I got by going somewhere. You know, someone always said, if someone offers you to go, you go. Yeah. You don't think about it. Just go because one day, if you didn't go, you go, geez, I wish I went. <laughs> so that was the way I wanted to live my life. Yeah, because you split your time between Australia and Italy for a number of years. Was it 10 years, was it, Dave? Yeah, about 10 years. So every six months. Six months in Australia, six months in Italy, six months, yeah, 10 years. How did, how did the coaches, the Wallaby coaches, feel about you doing that? No, there was no real problem. I think the only problem that occurred was uh, probably 89 with the British line when I passed the ball to Greg Martin. And uh, that week we were training and training had finished. So I decided to go and kick a ball around, but I had my Ray-Bans on. Yeah. And when we lost, obviously they used that photo saying, uh, Campisi and his spaghetti rugby. <laughs> so basically they tried to blame the, the way I played in Italy for losing the test match. You know, so just little things like that that sort of creep in because you made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, but, hey, 91, we won the World Cup, so obviously I learned by my mistakes and we won, so <laughs> you've got to try things. What was the style of rugby like in Italy? Uh, well, as a foreigner, you're the you're the star. Yeah. Um, they give you the ball, you get smashed, and then the coach came to me after about three weeks and said, how about you play number 10? So I did. So we tried to play, uh, we had a good set of forwards, uh, we had a you know, reasonably good set of backs. Most of the players who played for this team played Brisbane, so yeah. they were pretty skilled. And we just brought in the running style. You know, uh, We played against Michael Knotliner, played for Benetton, John Kerwin, yeah. Craig Green. You had Joel Spransky from South Africa and us both from South Africa. There was a lot of players who were playing over there in that era. And, uh, and we were the guys who were leading the way. Uh, trying to play an exciting brand of rugby. And rugby was great that time in Italy. Yeah, was it kind of the equivalent of what French rugby is now with all the Aussies and Kiwis going uh, over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, the French rugby's been destroyed, I think, by there's too many foreigners. Yeah. Uh, in Italy, you're allowed one foreigner when I played and probably two the year after, and that's where they sort of capped it. So the more local players, it helps their rugby. If you look at the French rugby, they've got so many foreigners that doesn't actually help their international side. The international side is nowhere near what it should be because they've got too many foreigners in the best positions. Yeah, that's interesting. I really want to talk to you about your preparation for games because I know that you used to sit on the front of the bus on the way to the stadium. Your preparation, you used to get your massage first, but you just seem like the ultimate professional. Can you just give us a few insights into how you used to prepare for games? Look, I think the... Uh when you love the game, you try and go and do whatever you can. Um, 
I think I'd get into a routine. So, you know, we had club training Tuesday, Thursday. I'd go to the gym at, say, 4.30. Go to the gym, then go training. So basically training for four hours. Uh, Friday night, I'd go for a swim to relax before a game. Uh, the day after, if something happened on the game, the Sunday I'd go around, kick a ball around the field, yep. or make sure that I'd improve what I did wrong. Um, when I went to Italy, I trained every day. Um, so it's really up to you. It's up to the individual. You know? And that's what I mean by professionals now. They do train every day, but they don't. Yeah. They're given certain parts of the day to train. And, again, I just love playing rugby. I mean, I knew I was there for a short time. Uh, playing for your country was the ultimate. I yeah. think that's that's one thing that's um, uh, sort of helped as well. And we had a lot of fun, and we won. Yeah. You know, winning is important, but I think the most important thing is the reason why we play at this level is because of the crowd. If we didn't play good rugby, nobody came to watch. So we was high expectation of us back in the 80s and 90s to perform because people wanted to come and watch great rugby, and we were fortunate enough to show a great style of rugby. Yeah. And that's why there was a lot of pressure, and that's why you had to stand, sit up to your standards. People set a standard, sometimes get knocked down, they don't want to go back. I said, well, if you want to be dangerous, you've got to try. Yeah. And that's what we did, and that's why we won two World Cups. Dave, how much of it was mental, and how much was it physical? Look, I just think there's a bit of both. I think that's, um, you know, there's this big, everyone talks now, there's 10,000 hours of training. I've got, you know, to sit there and think 10,000 hours, uh, it's a bit, bit bizarre. It's a long time. But the thing that I find is that if you want to be the best, you've got to obviously be very committed, you've got to try, and you've got to look for do something different. You can't be the norm. And I, I found that the fitter I was, I would walk in the dressing room, if the players saw me happy and smiling, they'd be relieved because, okay, well, this guy's ready to go. Yeah. But when you walk in, like if you had a sore ankle or you weren't 100%, there was a lot of feeling you could feel, okay, well, we've got to work hard today, you know. And it's just one of those things. You've got to make the most of the opportunity. Uh, when the grand finals, I think, was in 92, 93 against Gordon, like we were down by 23, three, three and a half time, not mm. looking good. And I scored uh, two tries, a touch the ball twice. Little things like that, that, you know, you get a chance to do something, you do it. Yeah. So mentally, if you are prepared, it's easy. If you're not prepared mentally, obviously that affects your play. Yeah, but sure. uh, physical as well. I mean, I was very fortunate not to get injured a lot in my career. Uh, but again, I looked after myself and I made sure that I had a lot of uh, Italian wine after games, a lot of pizza, <laughs> a lot of pasta. And, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's sort of helped, I think. Lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Dave, you had some amazing coaches in your time. You had guys like Alan Jones, Bob Dwyer. What I was going to ask you, is there any simple things that both of those gentlemen taught you? Look, I think there's a lot. You're right. There's a lot of interesting coaches. Uh, Bob Dwyer uh, was totally different to Alan Jones. Uh, they were both very successful. We had some great players. Yeah. Uh, but there's a couple of other coaches I had. There's a little guy in Italy called Vittorio Minardi. He was a little guy. Knowledge of rugby was amazing. Yeah. Uh, very passionate. Just the little things about playing the game, understanding uh, different cultures, uh, different plays as well, where they come from. And then there was the other guy called Jeff Sale at Randwick, who was probably the best coach, but he never said anything. He stood there and laughed. Uh, but at the time, we had the Australian back line there, we had the Yellows, we had the players. So, yeah. And, you know, it was like every Tuesday, Thursday, we'd touch for half an hour, 
bats versus forwards, have a bit of fun, then you get into training. But when you get at test level, obviously guys uh, have to have the respect uh, of the players, yeah. and I think that's important. If you haven't got the respect, I think coaches lose a lot of their uh, their ability to coach and for the players to understand. Um, selectors, we had Bob Templeton as well who were there. We had Alec Evans, who was fantastic. And I think what happens if, if you've got a good coaching setup, obviously the players follow, and it all sort of blends in well. If you're a, if you're a happy team, you're a winning team. Yeah. You know, you mentioned winning the respect of your players. As a former player yourself, what is the best way for a coach to actually get the respect of players? Well, I think the first thing is come in and uh, it, it must be hard to go through half the season then you've got to change a coach yeah. to the players. It must be hard. Then normally the next game they win because they've got a new coach and they want to show they hate the old coach. But I think the coach has got to come in and say, guys, okay, look, okay, you can ask the players, like, well, where are you guys going wrong? What's happening? What sort of style do we want to play? Yeah. And if they say a certain style, there's a coach, say, right, okay, look, we'll try and build to that. But I'm going to add in my influence. Uh, so it might take time, but we've got to be patient. But we all got to be in on how we want to play the game. Uh, I think Michael Checker was a great example. He came in the year of the World Cup 2015. Yep. We got to the finals. But since then, we haven't really performed. Was that because the players got something new or, you know, or something's changed or we haven't got the players anymore? So there's a lot of things that go into it. And the coach comes in, wants to play a style. But I think now, um, if you want to play a style of rugby, like the Australian style, which is running rugby, and yeah. the players haven't got the skills, well, you're not going to play to that level, are you? Yeah. You're going to struggle. So I think that's one of our main concerns at the moment is Michael Checker wants to play. He played at Randwick. Eddie Jones played at Randwick. The Ellis played at Randwick. Most of the coaches came out of Randwick, know the style. But if the players haven't got that skill set to play that style, you can't play that style. Yeah. You're going to fall short. You know? So everyone's got to be on the same page. Everyone's got to have the same skills. And everybody wants to go to that next level and have fun and win. To me, you've got to have fun. If you haven't got fun, don't play. Guys, we hope you're enjoying the episode with David Campisi. If you haven't yet, please check out some of our other episodes. Here's a little snippet from our interview with Paul, the Chief Harrigan. Well, with all things... um... It, you've got to go to the purpose level or the reason why you're doing the things you do because that, that's got to be way up high. So when you're down, you know, at the level of trying to sort out problems or something comes, you know, that's a difficult roadblock, you've got to lift yourself back up to that purpose. Why am I doing it? Because if your reason why you're doing the things you do is, is not more important than any obstacle that, that comes your way, you won't make it. So it's got to be a really, really strong reason. And you'll be tested out uh, at least two or three times you'll, you'll want to give up if it's a decent goal. And I found that, that just before the biggest breakthroughs came the worst the worst tests. Um, so easy to, to, to give in or fold in at that time, but somehow by the skin of your teeth, um, you manage to get through and, and that breakthrough comes. So my advice would be, um, if, if you're willing to eat and sleep something, if you're willing to think that what's my competitor doing right now? Well, I'm doing, I'm burning that desire. I'm, you know, I'm churning it over my mind. I want it more. If you're willing to do that, um, night and day till you achieve your goal, and when the big test comes, um, that your, your reason's stronger. It's like mathematics. You know, two and two are always going to equal four. Um, if you do those things, you cannot fail. 
The Chief was just in a number of interviews that I've had so far. I think you'll really enjoy the ones with guys like Merv Hughes, Greg Murphy, Robbie Madison, and Mark Ocalupo. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. And if you've got access to iTunes, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. If you want to get in touch with me, the best way is by email, tristan at talkingwithtk.com. Any feedback or guest requests, please send them through. I'd love to hear from you. But for now, let's get back to the show and our interview with David Campisi. Yeah, for sure. You know, New Zealand's been so dominant, Dave, for so long now. Is any team realistically going to threaten them at the next World Cup? Look, I think the British Lions might give them a run for their money yeah. uh, this year. I mean, because we've got four teams playing well in the Six Nations. Yeah. Uh, when previous years, there's only been one or two. Look, I, I think we can give a run for the money, but we just got to start believing we can win. You know, the All Blacks, uh, super fifth to their franchises. As you see, they all work well. They all play the same style of rugby. But they've got a good feeder system. We haven't got a feeder system. You know, we've got private schools, which we, which is great. But what about the government schools? Why don't we go to government schools? Why can't we go and get the players and play? We've got a sport, a couple of events, that rugby league and Aussie rules will never go. They'll yeah. never go to the Commonwealth Games and they'll never go to the Olympic Games. So why do we sit in our ass? And do nothing and let these guys dominate. Go to the schools and say, who wants to go to the Olympic? Who wants to win the gold medal? Yeah. Rugby league can't do it. Aussie rules can't do it. We can. So why don't we start pushing that? Um, so these are a couple of things that we've got to start to do. And we've just got to start to understand that we can start to win. Yeah. You know? And play as a team. It's a team sport. There's no I in team. And if we start, we've got to understand the try lines there. We've got a three-over. Just give the ball out and score the try. Don't try and be selfish and go yourself. Because yeah. those little things change the courses of the game yeah. at test level. Now, you talk about kind of creating that team environment. In terms of when you played in the Wallabies team, who would you say was the most influential player on yourself? Uh, well, I played on myself in the... Okay, look, there was a couple of... Uh, being the youngest in 1982, mm. you had Roger Gould, you had the Ellers, you had Michael Hawke, Andrew Slack. But I sat up there, 19-year-old, had no idea what I was doing, sitting out there going, this is great, you know, I'm listening and learning and all that. Yeah. It's quite interesting now you go, the trained coach, and the players don't listen to you because they look at you and they say, who are you? Yeah. What do you know? You know, they're all superstars. Uh, James O'Connor was probably the biggest... Uh, player that I've met that was like that, didn't want to listen to a word we said. When he first came on the scene in the Australian Sevens, thought he was a superstar. So you leave him. Look where he is now. Yeah, exactly. Look where he is now. You know, oh, these guys don't want to learn. They think that they are better than what they really are. The world is a big place. Unfortunately, you've got guys who have got natural talent. There's one in a million get to play for the Wallabies mm. or for any national team. So you've got to learn that you aren't the only one there. Yeah, there's been players before you who have got this team to where it is. Yeah. You've got to understand that you are continuing on the, the traditions, the traditions of the Wallabies, of running rugby of off the field is more important than on the field. Make sure you don't get in trouble because you get in trouble, you bring the nation down. Just little things like that that the, how can I say, that um, the ethics and respects is very important in life. There seems to be a lack of that now because there's mobile phones, there's social media. Yeah. You know, they take videos. After a game, they go straight in there and put a tweet on instead of actually talking to the players. I mean, that's it's, we understand that's that's life, but you've got to start to have the tradition. Why are the All Blacks so good? Why why were the Wallabies so good? Mm. Why? Because of what? Because we had a couple of good players? No, because of tradition. 
And we've got to bring that tradition back and that understanding of why you want to be a Wallaby. Yeah, well said, Dave. Have you had a chance to reflect on everything that you have achieved over the game? Sorry, I couldn't hear that one, sorry. I said, have you had a chance to reflect on what a marvellous career you've had and everything that you did achieve in the game? Look, look, I just think it's very fortunate, you know. I mean, it's, I had a great career because I wanted to, to play as long as I could. Mm. And I think that what we try to do is, you know, you play a lot of barbarian games, you play a lot of games, but you, you want to learn, you want to be good at what you do. Um, and... Look, I just, you know, I've got three great kids um, at the moment, uh, trying to pass on the knowledge. But also I keep on saying education is important. Yeah. You don't want to be in my position where I am now where I haven't got a job. It's not the best place to be in. So I say kids, you know, my daughter's very good at the moment in hockey. She plays tennis. She plays uh, squash, tennis, netball, uh, represent the KZN in netball in South Africa and hockey. Uh, my son's a good cricketer, a good rugby player. And I say, guys, it doesn't matter how good you are sport, education is very important. So that's one thing that I didn't really do properly. Uh, it's, I'm probably not blaming my parents, mm. but I should have actually been there, you know, looked after myself education-wise. But that's very, very big on my agenda for my kids. Yeah. Sport's great, but one day you break the leg, you've got to live. So education is most important. Great, you can have a great career, you can be successful, but obviously afterwards you've really got to try understand you're a normal person now you've got to get on i've got a lot of knowledge a lot of, lot, lot of things still to give yep um and that's what i'm trying to do yeah dave actually i was really curious with your wife being zimbabwean and south african and yourself being aussie and you guys crossing from both sides of the world with your three children do they have australian accents or south african accents uh well that's what my little daughter said dad how do you speak australian <laughs> <laughs> she's six and i said the cd is i said you are speaking Australian. <laughs> no, look, it's you've been able to pick up uh, the kids. They obviously go to school here. Yeah. They've been here five years, so they've gone through that system. There are a few words that they say, but you'll be able to pick them up. But, you know, I'm sure that uh, when they get to Australia next year, they'll, 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 they'll learn very quickly uh, a couple of the uh, local slang, which they, they shouldn't be able to say. <laughs> Dave, you mentioned the Barbarians games before, and I know that there was one particular game where you got a standing ovation from the crowd. Do you still remember that game very well? Uh, I think that was the Barbarians 84, wasn't it? I think it, it was the Wales uh, game, was it? No, actually, in it was Wales, was after it? the game, wasn't it? About yeah. the crowd? Yeah, after the game, apparently you got a standing ovation. I think it was maybe in Wales. I think. Yeah, that was uh, that was 88 uh, when I scored that try against the Barbarians. Uh, uh, look, I had a great tour that year. Um, and look, I just had a lot of fun. And I scored uh, a fantastic try from halfway. And the crowd's... Actually, he stood up in the floor, but I mean, I didn't notice. I was running back with the team, so it didn't really, you know, I mean, that's that's what I was there for. I was there to entertain. Yeah. And the Barbarians were always the best game because you wanted to win, but you wanted to have a lot of fun, and you could try different things, and, and you got away with it. So I was very fortunate that we, we um, 84, we had a great Barbarians game, and 88. So we got very fortunate to be involved in a lot of great Australian teams that we could play some, you know, entertainment rugby. Yeah, Camp was yourself. What do you think your biggest point of difference was in comparison to everyone else? Look, I just think my uh, biggest was just the unpredictability. I mean, the players knew. I had a great relationship with Michael Leiter, uh, the back line. I always told them where I was. I was a great talker. Um, Nick Fire Jones and I had a great relationship. If I saw something down the line, I would call and he would react. 
so that's that's what you've got to do, and that's that's why. And I said, you know, I could have been. Uh, I keep on using Rory Underwood as an example, but uh, at the time he was English winger, always had white shorts, never got tackled, never sealed the ball. And I said, I could be a Rory Underwood and be, you know, ball, not you know, sit out there and get the ball once a game, or I could try things. Yeah. And I'd learned to try. You know, I could sidestep, I could swerve, I could do the goose step, yeah. kick, chase, pass right, pass left. So there were six things where other wingers could probably have two things. So, and that was my uh, opportunity to add value into a team, just try things when other guys wouldn't want to try or didn't want to try. And the more you try, yes, you made mistakes, but the more you got the ball, if I got the ball 20 times and made my mistake, no one cared. If I got the ball three times and made two mistakes, well, everyone knew about it. Yeah. Dave, one thing I've got to ask you, mate, is that goose step. It's awesome. Where was it invented and did someone teach it to you? Look, I don't think it was invented. I, I remember watching, I was, I, I was the first time I really used it when I was about eight years old, I think, uh, playing rugby league for the Blues, and I went down to a little town called Yass. Yeah. And um, I got the ball under the post, and I saw these two kids, and I did something and scored up the other end. And these guys had glided heads, and I said, geez, that actually, that works. Um, I think I saw uh, a rugby league player do it. I don't know if it was Eric Grove back in the day yeah. or someone like that. Uh, but I did see someone do it, and I said, oh, well, looks good. I used it. Never, you never practiced it. Never did anything. I just one of those things I I could utilize when the time was right on the field. Awesome. Now the nineteen ninety one World Cup. Does that stand in your career as your finest moment? Look, uh, I think it was because of the occasion. Yeah. Uh, but uh, eighty four Grand Slam was a great moment as well. The first Australian team to ever win a Grand Slam. Mm. Uh, eighty eight. Um, you know, we won the Bledisloe Cup uh, in 92. We won the Bledisloe Cup in 86 in New Zealand, the last time we've ever done that. So things like that uh, at Eden Park. So, look, there's a lot of great moments. Um, you know, I was just fortunate to play in some great teams and travel the world and entertain people. Um, moments are great. Uh, there's a lot of other great moments in other games, in provincial games, uh, off the field, you know, little moments and all that sort of thing. So, look... I think it was great because the world was watching, but uh, I just treated every game the same. Just because it was a World Cup, didn't really change the way I played. Yeah. Um, and I, I was fortunate that I'd um, obviously 1989 British line sort of you know put me down for a couple of months, but uh, I learned and went forward. And um, you know we had a great team. And uh, if the team didn't perform, we weren't going to win. And uh, obviously we had a great bunch of Aussies, and uh, I was happy to be part of it. Yeah, Dave, the great late Jonah Lomu. When he first burst on the scene in 1995, had you guys known anything about this guy? Uh, look, I think I saw him before in 94 in one of the games in uh, Sydney. He played for the New Zealand 21s. But I think it was number eight then. So we sort of noticed, but he didn't really take much notice until he came on the scene. And look, he, he did a fantastic job. He was a different player. Um, and unfortunately, he brought along where all coaches wanted six foot four wingers then. So us little guys were sort of kicked out. Um, so it wasn't a great place to be in. But, um, you know, Jonah had his good points. Um, people wanted to see him with the ball. His uh, work rate off the ball wasn't really great, but no one cared about that. So yeah. so it was a bit, bit like me, you know. I mean, the thing is, he's, his work rate was getting the ball and scoring run over people. Um, and that was and just t- that took rugby to a new level. Um, and even now, you see most teams want to be, they want to get a big six foot four winger. Yeah. And unfortunately, some of them aren't that good. They're big, 
but that's all they could do is just run. Just you know, run. They don't think, they can't pass, they can't chip. So, you know, you, you, you get some sort of player, but you, you're lacking in a lot of other things, a lot of finesse, little things. And um, now Jonah, while he was there, had a great time, and he brought the world to a new level. And I think that's, uh, that was uh, part of the game back then. You know, I think the game has moved on. Uh, but it was great to see guys like Shane Williams under retired a couple of years ago, only a small guy. Mm. Uh, you look at the McKenzie's now playing for the Chiefs. Now, they're not very big. So it's great to see the little guys come back yeah, and can still sure. step and swerve. So Jonah couldn't do that. He just ran over people. Yeah. Great step. Uh, but the little guys have got the little things, and I think that's what rugby's all about. You go through patches of big and small, big and small, back to small guys. Yeah, another guy you had a great rivalry with was jo- uh, John Kerwin. He was a very similar style of player to Jonah, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was uh, a very, very uh, robust player, very big, very uh, skillful. But again, he was known for what he was, his his strength and his speed. Um, everyone's got different. Mine was a bit different mm. to his. And uh, we always had these great rivalries. Um, and, you know, I think we probably end up square over all those years. He ran around me a few times. <laughs> I tried to run around him a few times. <laughs> Uh, but that was it. That's you know we were, we were both wingers and we had different strengths and that's what's, uh, what's so so unique about our game. We didn't have the same strengths and we played against each other. We had different things and we had to be wary of each other all the time. Yeah, Dave, did you have any superstitions before a game? Uh, yes, I used to always go get massage first. I'd always get my uh, strap first. Um, always got my left boot on first before I train a uh, game. Uh, Friday night. I'd clean my boots, take the laces out, wash them, even though they were black, clean the boots, make sure that I look the parts the next day. Always want to look the part. I didn't want to look like a slob. And I think players, by having socks down their ankles, just like they're not prepared. Uh, but that's the way I wanted to do it. And um, always drop my ankles and my wrists as well. So there's a few things up. Awesome. Now, David, before I let you go... I want everyone at home to be following David Campisi. You can check out his website, www.davidcampisi.com. He's very active on his Twitter, David Campisi 11 or you can find him on Facebook, at the official David Campisi. Now, David, last final question is for everyone out there, you know, obviously you achieved all your dreams. You made it to the top. Now, for other people chasing their dreams, what advice would you have for them? Uh, look, it's difficult. Firstly, you want to love what you're doing. Yeah. If you don't love what you're doing, don't do it. You've got to be really patient about it. If you want to be the best, learn. Watch the games. If you want to be a good netball player, you can't not watch netball to be a great netball player. Yeah. Rugby's the same. You can't be a great player if you don't watch someone in your position. I Every time I coach around the world, uh, I ask the kids, okay, do you love the game? Yes. Okay, what position nine? Uh, are you, uh, I'm a half. Good. Who's your best player? Oh, Jonah Lomu. I said, well, Jonah's not going to help you at a number nine, is he? <laughs> you've got to watch a number nine at your position. Yeah. Or is you're a number eight, you can't be a winger. So you've got to watch someone in your position. You've got to see what they do that you don't do, and you've got to go and try things. Um, I always believe also that you've got to do the basic skills. Mm. You can't be a flair player if you can't do the simple basic skills. And one thing, one of my, on my webpage, it's, uh, uh, you mentioned www.davidcampy.com slash skills. I've got nine basic skills that any coach can use. Uh, it's very, very simple. They're very basic skills, but I still practice those. Even though I played for the Wallabies, everything we did there is what I did playing for Australia. If you can't do those, you can't do the hard things. Yeah. So 
as I said, the most important thing I tell kids, don't go for the money. If you love the game, go and play for a team that you know that you're going to fit in and you're going to have a lot of fun. If you go for the money, you're gone for the wrong reasons. David Campisi, I appreciate you stopping by talking with TK. I've had an absolute blast. All the best for the rest of this year, and I'm looking forward to seeing you back in Australia soon. No, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, it's great to be on your show, and looking forward to come back and uh, try and help us great rugby out next year. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Dave. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Campo. I really enjoyed bringing it to you, so stay tuned. We've got an action-packed next episode coming up. We've got Australian, or former Australian wicketkeeper, Brad Haddon. He's a, he's a massive character, plenty of stories, so stay tuned. The best way you can help me is to share it with your family and friends. Please connect with me on social media. I'm at Tristan Cannell on Facebook and Twitter, or you can find me at Tristan Cannell Fitness on Instagram. So please connect, or if you want to send me an email, please send me one at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Until next time, I really hope you've enjoyed the show. But I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.